Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and this week we are talking a day after the historic Trumpkin Summit in Singapore about a big question which many people are wondering around the world. Has the West lost it? To help me make sense of all this, I am joined by Kishore Mabubani, who is one of the doyens of diplomacy in Singapore. He is a former Singaporean ambassador to the United Nations, a former president of the General Assembly. He was the founder of the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy at the National University of Singapore. And he has spent uh, many months uh, thinking both about uh, where the West is going, particularly um, uh, particularly how it relates to, to Asia. So I can't think of anyone uh, better to help us make sense of both the bigger question, but also to help us understand what came out of the, the Trump-Kim summit, what it means, and uh, particularly what it might mean for, for, the, for the US role in Asia in the future. Um, Kishore, you're not actually in Singapore at the moment. You escaped the chaos of the summit to, to Lisbon, I think. But, um, but I imagine you've been watching it very closely. What, what, do you, what are your main takeaways from it? Well, my, my main takeaway from it, which is a very provocative takeaway, is that both Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un should be awarded the Nobel Peace Prize this year because they have successfully diffused tension uh, and the on the most dangerous uh, and most militarized border uh, on planet Earth. So this has been a massive breakthrough. Uh, and as you know, also, frankly, North Korea was the last hermit kingdom uh, also on planet Earth, the last country to open up and modernize and globalize. So finally, uh, for the first time in almost 70 years, uh, North Korea has decided to open up. So the there are some massive results from the Singapore meeting, uh, which the Western media has completely missed in its analysis and coverage. But many Western commentators are saying that, that we've been here before, that you know, this isn't the first opening up. There have been various different openings up um, in, in the past, which have simply um, postponed the crisis rather than actually solved it. What makes you think that it's different this time? Uh, actually, we have never been here before. <laughs> Number one, the North Korean leader has never traveled overseas uh, to attend such a high-level meeting. Secondly, there's never been a direct meeting within the President of the United States of America and the President of North Korea. This is a breakthrough on multiple fronts that has never existed uh, before. But much more than that, I mean, what is striking is that uh, Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un could find a common language to talk to each other and a common language with which to relate to each other. And people have forgotten so quickly the sort of language that both, the sort of insults that both America and North Korea used to hurl at each other uh, until as recently as uh, 12 months ago. I mean, uh, Donald Trump was calling Kim Jong-un a rocket man, and Kim Jong-un responded brilliantly by calling Donald Trump a dotard. <laughs> that, that's a command of English that was quite remarkable. So we have come an incredibly long way uh, in the last 12 months or so, and frankly, this is the biggest hope for peace that we have ever seen 
on the Korean Peninsula since the end of the Korean War uh, in the 19, early 1950s. So why do you think so many people in Japan, in South Korea and other places are, are, are being so negative about it, saying that King Jong-un has, has won all of his main uh, objectives, he's being treated as an equal to, to the US, he, North Korea is being confirmed as a nuclear power, but at the same time, is not making any any concessions, um, and that that could actually just be storing up um, uh, or paving the way for a much bigger crisis, which could be much more violent, given that he, he's less constrained. Well, I mean, the uh, you, you mentioned uh, South Korea and Japan. I can very well understand Japan's concerns, but I think the people in South Korea are very happy uh, about the results because you know if a war broke out. On the Korean Peninsula, as you know, North Korea has got, forget nuclear weapons, has got thousands of uh, artillery guns poised to uh, uh, shoot artillery shells in, at the capital city and million people could die in just a conventional war across the Korean border. So for the people of South Korea, this is an immense relief, you know. Uh, this uh, breakthrough. But of course, you know, uh, I, I, I know that many Western analysts have pointed out the weaknesses and limitations of what was agreed to in uh, uh, Singa in Singapore. But the, the important thing is the breakthrough and the agreement to carry on a dialogue. There'll be a few stumbles, there'll be a few missteps, there'll be a few retreats. But as long as the process of talking begins, that's a huge breakthrough uh, on the Korean Peninsula issue. And in terms of the uh, trust in both places, how do you think that the way that Donald Trump has been handling the, the Iran nuclear file um, is going to, and also the way that the West treated uh, Libya after Colonel Gaddafi um, uh, agreed to get rid of his, his, uh, his weapons of mass, his nuclear weapons program um, will affect Kim Jong-un's um, decision making. I mean, does the West actually have the credibility to, to, to have a real dialogue with North Korea at the moment? Uh, well, you're right. I mean, uh, it was a huge mistake um, for the Trump administration officials to refer to the Libyan episode because uh, the lesson from the Libyan episode was that uh, you cannot uh, trust the West to make a deal because in return for Muammar Gaddafi giving up his nuclear program, he was supposed to be given regime security. And that promise of regime security, as you know, was violated. And that's why North Korea initially reacted very angrily to references to Libya. But at the same time, let's also be clear that the geopolitical situation of North Korea is very different uh, from that of Libya. There is no way that the West can carry out regime change in North Korea without the approval of China. So China, as you know, uh, I don't know how many hundred thousand Chinese died in the first uh, Korean War. They had massive losses. And China is not going to sit back and allow the West to unilaterally intervene in, in, in North Korea. So I think while, while the uh, Libyan episode holds some lessons for North Korea, and North Korea will be very careful, uh, they also know that North Korea is militarily much stronger than Libya ever was and that China would never allow a Libyan-type regime change in the Korean Peninsula. Okay. 
Well, maybe we should um, try and uh, broaden the, the focus out a bit further and, and maybe uh, we could look at this North Korean issue as part of this bigger context. You've just written this book, uh, a short essay, which you call a, a provocation called Has the West Lost It? And uh, your starting point is that the West two century epoch as a global powerhouse is at an end and we're returning to a new old world order where China and India um, will return to being the biggest economies in the world, the position which they've been in for, for, for most of uh, modern times. And um, <clears throat> that therefore means that the West can no longer uh, impose its ideology on the world, uh, that it has to stop trying to intervene in all sorts of different places. Um, and you talk about some of the problems which the West has had, whether it's in, in Iraq, um, uh, uh, the crisis in the Middle East, etc. T- to what extent do you think that this meeting between um, Trump and uh, and um, uh, Kim Jong Un um, fits into your new narrative about the about the future post Western world? Yeah, uh, you're, you're you're absolutely right. Uh, we are now entering a post Western world, but as I emphasize. Uh, in my book, uh, Has the West uh, Lost It?, that this was a perfectly natural thing to happen because from the year 1 to the year 1820, for 1800 out of the last 2,000 years, the two largest economies of the world were always those of China and India. So it's only in the last 200 years that Europe took off and America took off. But if you view the uh, past 200 years against the backdrop of the past 2,000 years, the past 200 years of world history have been a major historical aberration. All historical aberrations come to a natural end. So it's perfectly natural to see the return of China and India. But what's remarkable, of course, is how fast uh, it is happening. Because in the year 1980, which is only 38 years ago, in purchasing power parity terms, uh, China's share of the global GNP was only 2.2%, while United States' share was 25%. That meant that China's share was less than 10% of the United States. But by 2014, China's share had become bigger than the United States. So this has become, we really, we really made a major historical turn uh, in the last 30 years. And one other point that my book emphasizes, Mark, is that all this is a result of massive gifts by the West to the rest. And so the rest of the world should send the West a thank you note <laughs> for having revived the, the rest of the world and made it now uh, uh, to approach a condition which is on par with that of Western society. So what are the geopolitical implications of this huge shift in, in power and resources in relative terms? Well, I think the main, the main geopolitical implication is that the West now has got to stop its 200-year-old habit of intervening in the affairs of other countries, societies, and civilizations. And, and I, you know, this book of mine... Uh, was designed to be a gift to the West to say, hey, when the rest of the world has woken up, uh, you've got to you've got to change and adapt uh, structurally also. And for example, uh, if you look, if you want to sort of do a brutal analysis on how Donald Trump was elected in 2016, it's partly a result of the admission of China into WTO. 
and the creative destruction that followed uh, as a result of uh, China's admission into the global economy. So you think that, that China's, uh, that it was the, the fact that the American middle class has been stagnating and, and the jobs that, that were lost within the US as a result of China's admission that that, 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 that created the kind of Trump base, that's what you're arguing? Uh, well, I think an American economist called, I think David Otto, A-U-T-O-R, yeah. has actually documented uh, uh, in detail how, how this has happened. And this is perfectly natural. This fits Western economic theory because Joseph Schumpeter made it very clear that when you have new economic competition, you also have creative destruction. So the creative destruction was part of the capitalist process. And unfortunately, Western policymakers didn't have their eye on the ball. They were just looking at the massive profits being made by the elites in America and didn't notice, by the way, one shocking fact about America is that the median income of the American worker hasn't gone up in 40 years. They're That's also here. a result of the new world that is emerging. What, so the what? West must learn to adjust and adjust and adapt to this world and cannot, it cannot carry on on autopilot. But what does adjusting mean? Does it mean having semi-open markets like China and basically shutting other companies out of the markets, not allowing them to invest so that you can protect these Western jobs? I mean, what, what, what would the solution have been? Well, I think, you know, uh, it's very clear that you now have to, if you, if you want to revive the global economy, which we all want to do, you have to work with the rest of the world and not try to have meetings of the G7, which represent a club of the past. And of course, what is shocking about the recent G7 meeting in Quebec is that even the G7 cannot agree uh, with each other, you know, as you know. So the West is really struggling uh, to adjust and adapt to this new world that is coming because the West has failed to understand that uh, in this new world, it can no longer make demands on the rest of the world. It's got to uh, accept that it's got to make structural changes uh, to adapt uh, to this new world order. And here, of course, uh, Donald Trump's uh, trade policies are dead wrong because the last thing you want to do is become protectionist because protectionism always undermines your economy and never delivers economic growth. Except that China's entire economic miracle has been based on keeping its markets closed so that it could build national champions. I mean, you, you know, keeping Google, um, Twitter, Facebook, uh, and all the other giants out of the Chinese market so that you could build um, these enormous companies like Tencent and Baidu. And um, it, I mean, I think China shows, uh, in a way, uh, is much more Trumpian than Trump in that its, its uh, economy is very closed. Well, I, I, I think, you know, the, the story of China, of course, is a, is a complex story. If indeed uh, China was uh, keeping its market closed and not integrating with the rest of the world, Western economic theory tells us that that kind of economic development fails. And the reason why China has been the fastest growing economy in the world for the, like, over 30 years is that China has been integrating itself uh, with the rest of the world. So, for example, if you take an Apple a phone, for example, the reason why the Apple phone is competitive is because of inputs uh, that put in by the Chinese workers. And in fact, most of the value add from the iPhone, uh, let's say if an iPhone sells for $800, China gets $7, and the Americans get three to $400. <laughs> 
So as a result of China's integration into the world economy, actually American corporations have also benefited uh, uh, a great deal. But of course, you're right. Now that China has become so large and so massive, uh, clearly China can can take on more responsibilities uh, in terms of working with the rest of the world. And there are some areas in which I think the world expects China to open up its economy more as it becomes a bigger and bigger player on the world stage. And you're right about that. So let's maybe dwell a bit more on your these questions about uh, foreign policy and, and sovereignty, because you were saying that the West has to stop intervening in other countries' internal affairs. But the reality is also that unlike most of the last 2,000 years, we live in a period of, of ultra-connectivity where it's not just that there are enormous flows of trade and investment and complicated supply chains which cut across borders, but also with the internet, we now have a single humanly created network that literally connects billions of people. Um, so people are naturally kind of involved in each other's internal affairs all the time. Um, and, you know, no one is more involved in, in people's internal affairs than China. That's uh, for its Belt and Road Initiative, which is now trying to create um, uh, literally a physical infrastructure that, that links up 65 countries, two and a half billion people, um, putting itself at the centre of it. I mean, we've seen, I think, um, big shifts in the Chinese debates about intervention. They're getting much more involved in internal politics in countries like Afghanistan. They're a long way from the old five principles of peaceful coexistence where they didn't believe in, in getting involved in, in, in other countries' internal affairs. Is it, is it that we should go back to not intervening or are you saying that uh, maybe uh, the Chinese and the Indians and others should now get a chance to intervene in others' uh, affairs in the US and and, and Europe should be a bit less uh, involved? Uh, no, my, <laughs> my, my answer is the exact opposite, uh, which is that the, everybody should become uh, less interventionist uh, in the affairs. Because frankly, what, what the remarkable change in our world today is that countries that were supposed to be basket cases and beyond solution are succeeding on their own. I mean, let me give you just two big examples of two of the largest Islamic countries. Indonesia was supposed to fall apart and break up in, into another Yugoslavia after the 1997-98 financial crisis. Today, uh, Indonesia is the world's most successful Islamist democracy and is growing steadily at 5% a year. Bangladesh, another big Muslim country, was supposed to be a basket case, uh, according to Henry Kissinger. It's also been growing steadily at 5% a year for the last 20 years. So the rest of the world is doing very well without Western uh, uh, intervention. And the thing that's very unusual about the West is that it continues, and this is a very stark point I make in my book, huh? uh, the West has continued to drop bombs, especially drop bombs on Islamic countries. Let me give you a shocking statistic. In the last year of Barack Obama's presidency, the American military dropped more than 26,000 bombs in seven different countries. Now, isn't that a shocking statistic? Why is the West continuing to drop bombs uh, in the Islamic world and not let the Islamic world find its own destiny? And by so doing, it's creating a backlash against the West, which is very dangerous and which leads to all the terrorist incidents that the West worries about. So... I don't think China and India have the same kind of messianic uh, impulse that the West does 
to improve the rest of the world because they actually believe that the rest of the world can succeed and develop uh, on its own. And one one of the strongest quotations that I have uh, in my book is from a very senior Indian diplomat, Sham Saran, uh, where he says, you know, every time the West intervenes in a country, and I quote his words, in most cases, the post-intervention situation has been rendered much worse, the violence more lethal, and the suffering of the people who are supposed to be protected much more severe than before. This is an Indian diplomat, not a Chinese diplomat, saying that the Western interventions have actually made the world much worse. So this is this is a very radical idea for the Western mind to accept that it doesn't have to intervene in the affairs of the rest of the world for the rest of the world to succeed and do well. And so that's in in the Middle East in particular. What do you think um, the U.S. role in Asia should be going forward as China becomes more and more powerful and as the balance of military power um, changes? Do you think that China that China should be given more space? Do you think that the U.S. should be less hardline about all of these territorial disputes which China's involved with with its neighbours and stop flying over these islands and? Um, uh, and atolls and, and trying to to, um, uh, to to maintain a status quo, which which the Chinese are, are slowly trying to change. Well, you're absolutely right. I think we should be we should be trying our best to try and influence China's behaviour as it emerges as the number one power in the world, which will happen within ten to fifteen years. But as you know, in my book, I, I quote from a speech that President Bill Clinton gave in Yale in 2003, and in which he said, if America assumes it's going to be number one forever, then America can keep on doing whatever it's doing. It can continue to remain as unilateral as possible in its policies. Then Bill Clinton added a but. He said, but if they can conceive of a world where America is no longer number one, then surely it's in America's interest to promote a, a world that is based on rules, partnerships, and multilateral institutions. And so this, is, this was Bill Clinton's very cunning advice to America, saying that if you want China to emerge and play uh, a, a rules-based role in the world, America has got to lead the way by showing, uh, showing the way. And unfortunately, for whatever reason, since the end of the Cold War, America has actually been undermining the global rules-based order and as I say in my book, uh, every rule that America supports is a rule that China will support when it becomes number one. And every loophole that America creates in international law is a loophole that China will take advantage of when it becomes number one. So the best way to manage the rise of China is for the United States to lead the way by demonstrating what a responsible global power does. And unfortunately, in the last 20 years, uh, America has been doing the opposite. And that's, that's my biggest uh, source of concern in this book. Has the West lost it? So the one power that is desperate for a rule-based world order more than maybe any other is the European Union because it is a community of, of rules itself. It is, in fact, just a legal construction. Um, and yet they, they, the EU doesn't seem to feature very uh, prominently in your analysis. Where, where does... Um, does uh, Europe fit into the Mabubani world? Of the future? Uh, well, I, I do actually have a dream. <laughs> <laughs> I dream that the European Union will wake up 
and actually explain to the world that a rules-based order works very well. It has worked very well in preserving peace uh, within Europe. As you know, the one area in which Europe leads the world is that there are not just zero wars between any two European states. There, there is what I call a zero prospect of war between any two European states. France and Germany will never go to war with one another. Germany and UK will never go to war with one another. And this is a this is a model that, frankly, the Asian countries need to follow. I, I want, I'm dreaming of the day where there's zero prospect of war within China and India, and a zero prospect of war within China and Japan. And we can only do that by learning from the uh, European Union and what it has accomplished. But unfortunately, at a time when the European Union should be providing greater global leadership, is become mired once again in its own internal issues and Brexit is frankly a major distraction and it prevents the European Union from realizing that its challenges are going to come from outside and not from inside. And let me just give you one statistic which is shocking. In 1950, uh, Europe's population was twice that of Africa's. Today, Africa's population is more than twice that of Europe. And by 2100, Africa's population will be 10 times the size of Europe. Today, when one migrant ship tries to land in Europe, all of Europe becomes paralyzed by that. Can you imagine a world where hundreds of migrant ships arrive in European borders? What are you going to do? How do you prevent that from happening? And, and frankly, if the Europeans do not heed the advice in my book, a more difficult world is emerging for Europe. And... Um what do you think Europeans should do then in well, concrete terms? I, 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 you know, one of the most provocative things I say in my book is that the Europeans should become more Machiavellian. And this is how I think the Europeans can become more Machiavellian. Because it is in Europe's long-term interest to promote the economic development of Africa to prevent more African migrants coming to Europe. Now, the best way to promote uh, uh, economic development in Africa is to work with the country that is now investing the most in Africa, which is China. So it is therefore in Europe's interest to support Chinese investments in Africa and not oppose them. But because, as you know, the United States is very uncomfortable with Chinese investments in Africa and disapproves of them, Europe joins America in disapproving of investments, Chinese investments in Africa, which actually are going to benefit Europe <laughs> in the long run. This shows a complete lack of un-Machiavellian, uh, complete lack of Machiavellian thinking in Europe, which is dangerous for its long-term future. So Europe should wake up and do a complete sort of reboot of its strategic calculations and, and, and work out a completely new uh, foreign policy that is independent of that of the United States because the geopolitical interests of the United States in the long run are completely different from the geopolitical interests of Europe in the long run. What scope do you think there is for, for Europeans to, to work with uh, China and India um, as, as this kind of tension between Europe and America grows? Well, I think, I, I think Europe should see the return of China and India as massive opportunities uh, rather than as a threat. Because as you know, the the... the the world's largest middle classes uh, are emerging uh, in Asia. I mean, just to give you one statistic, 
uh, in Asia, uh, in all of Asia, from West Asia to East Asia, the total the middle class population in 2010 was 500 million. But by 2020, that number explodes to 1.75 billion, an increase of three and a half times in 10 years. So the biggest markets for European products are going to be coming from Asia. And so Europe should now sort of reorient itself and realize that the future doesn't lie across the Atlantic. The future lies in partnering with the new uh, Asian powers. But, you know, the Europeans have a very, uh, how do you say, (laughs) they seem to be stuck in the past and cannot imagine a post-Atlantic future for Europe, and which which is the one that is coming down their way. But what does partnering mean in practical terms? In practical terms, certainly it means uh, a greater degree of uh, economic engagement, uh, free trade agreements, and, you know, doing more with... uh, Europe's already the main trade part, the biggest trade partner for China. For I mean, most of the countries in Asia, Europe's either number one or number two as their trading partner. There's scope to do do, uh, uh, a lot more. And as you know, you know, I'm now in Lisbon, Portugal, and I am actually quite shocked by the pessimism uh, of the young Europeans I meet here uh, in Portugal. And they don't, they don't feel that there's a great future lying ahead for them. And that's such a contrast to the optimism I feel when I speak to young Chinese and young Indians or even young Southeast Asians. So the best cure for the sort of pessimism that is dragging down the soul of Europe is to inject it with some Asian optimism. And the best way to do that is to uh, uh, engage Asia even more actively. Okay. So that's um, uh, quite a, a big reorientation, which you're, which you're hoping from, from Europe. I mean, what do you think, um, maybe we can sort of end with a, a look at what you think is likely to happen. If we look forward um, in the next 20 or 30 years, how do you see all of these different things playing out? What kind of world do you think we're going to be in? How likely is it that there will be a sort of peaceful adjustment to this new world? How likely is it that we could end up in, in some sort of um, uh, new world war? People have talked a lot about Thucydides and um, uh, the prospect of war between China and America as, 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 as we move forward. I mean, what, what's your, how, how optimistic do you feel about the future? Well, I, I'm probably <laughs> one of the most optimistic persons on uh, planet Earth because one thing people forget is that we have done more to improve the human condition in the last 30 years than we have in the past 300 years or the past 3,000 years. One of the shocking statistics I give in my book is that in 1950, three quarters of the world's population was suffering from extreme poverty Today, that figure has gone from 75% to less than 10%. That's a dramatic improvement in the human condition. And I predict that the human condition will get even better in the next 30 years. So humanity has the great potential uh, to achieve something that is borders on utopia in the next 30 years. However, it has to manage, as you indicated, some geopolitical challenges, especially the geopolitical challenges between the world's number one power today, which is the United States of America, and the world's number one emerging power, which is uh, China. 
And I actually believe that China does not want to disrupt the world order. China is really the biggest beneficiary of the, the open uh, global rules-based order. Is the world's number one trading power. So China actually wants to sustain this rules-based order, and it's actually the United States that is shaking it, sadly. So if we can somehow persuade the American population not to see China as a great threat, but China as a great opportunity. But it's not just China, I want to emphasize. You will see the return of both China and India. It's not just a China story. So as China and India emerge and become once again the number one and number two economies in the world by 2050, that provides a massive growth opportunity uh, for all the countries in the world. But the Western leaders and Western policymakers must realize that they have to make a massive U-turn. And I said, as I, as, and as I said at the beginning of this interview, the West has got to stop intervening in the affairs of the rest of the world, and that will create a better world for all of us. Okay, well, we'll see whether your optimism about the human condition or the pessimism of the geopolitical historians uh, prevails. I have to come back in a few decades and, and do another uh, follow-up interview. But... Um, in the meantime, uh, thanks a lot for an absolutely fascinating discussion. Um, there are copies of Keyshaw's book um, available from all good bookshops, both online and, uh, and in the um, uh, uh, real world, or meat space as it's now called. We'll put a link up to, uh, to the book, Has the West Lost It?, um, on our website, which is www.ecfr.eu slash podcasts. But for now, from Kishore Mahbubani and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher of ECFR's podcast is Jonathan Hakenbosch, and our editor is Katerina Botel-Azzinaro. Mm-hmm.